Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Surf and Sales podcast. I'm Scott Lease here with my friend Richard Harris. And we are joined today by Matteo Idebaka, who's the partner and managing director at Renaissance Leadership International. How's it going, Matteo? Hey, guys. Uh, such a pleasure to be here. Uh, I am uh, excited and uh, uh, looking forward to the conversation today. Yeah. Good to uh, get to chat with you. You and I have known each other for a couple of years now. You're just meeting Richard for uh, for the first time, so it's cool that you guys get a chance to to chat. Um, tell everybody about <clears throat> what you do, because most people uh, have no idea what partner and managing director means, and in particular to Renaissance leadership. So tell everybody what you do, and give us some context to your sales world and selling experience. Yeah. So. Uh... My profession is uh, been in and around executive leadership. Um, I think in the last four or five years, it's evolved from just individual placement of of CXO or VP level talent for growth companies, um, and has evolved to be more around uh, team dynamics or or team alignment. I think as technology has moved into a different maturity curve, um, and entrepreneurship has been more embraced by a wider audience. Uh, of executives and, and individual contributors. Um, I think what we are noticing, particularly in the areas that I focus on, which is go-to-market sales, marketing, uh, customer success, and product, uh, the turnover inside of growth companies has never been lower. Um, and there are a lot of different contributing factors to that, so I don't necessarily believe in silver bullets. But the whole reason for joining Renaissance Leadership and partnering with my now business partner, a guy named Ben Anderson, is that he was promoting a different uh, philosophy, a different view on uh, not only human performance uh, and in the context of executive teams, but it was about how do you take a a high-performing executive like Scott Lease or like Richard uh, and make sure that not only individually are they set up for success within the function that you're gonna go contribute to an organization, but that that entire team, that entire organization was in fact prepared and had done the pre and post work to support you into that organization so that you can go have a greater runway for success. Um, And so that's what we've been doing over the last uh, four and a half, five years. Um, So maybe I'll pause there. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, How, how are you, how are you determining what are some of the criteria to, when you're matching up executives with opportunities? Let's say you're aware of two or three opportunities out there for <clears throat> head of sales roles or head of marketing roles or whatever. And Richard and I are, you know, both in the running. What are some of the things that you look for to say, okay, this one would be better for Richard. This one would be better for, for Scott. How do you, how do you make those kind of choices? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, look, I think when you've been doing it as long as I have, uh, and I think, you know, as I looked at Richard's background and, and Scott, you've been uh, driving sales for such a long time. I think that the intellectual capital that you begin to develop and the institutional knowledge from experience, uh, you start to draw on more and more. And so what I often point to is to say at a certain level in any profession, there's some type of normalizing where um, the skills or the, the ability to do something um, it almost becomes second nature or as fluid as, as breathing. So 
none of us have to think to breathe, although with COVID-19, we're probably thinking a lot more about breathing than we ever have before. But prior to this, uh, in a current situation, and we get up, we get into our flow, and, and we're just breathing and we're functioning as humans. Um, and so there are some things that are just that natural and intuitive. And so I think when I look at companies and I look at leaders, the skills aspect, meaning, you know, if Richard and, and Lise are qualified to do the same function on paper, that's not necessarily as interesting to me. And so I'm more curious, or we as an organization are more curious in terms of what are the intrinsic motivators? Who is the human? Who is Richard? Who is Scott? Uh, how does that complement this organization? Um, to what extent do you think about values as a mechanism for success? Um, do those values complement an organization? And it's not about homogeneity. So it's not about, hey, I want to hire people that think the same. And in fact, you know, one thing that's very timely right now is diversity. And so I feel like we've co-opted diversity to mean we have three white people, uh, three uh, black people, uh, three women, three men. But diversity and what I try to promote with my customers is really about diversity of thought um, and then belonging. So how do we make sure that we're creating an environment where Lise or Richard feel like they belong to something and can go have an impact? So the skills notwithstanding, assuming that you both on paper again can do the job and that I validated it and qualified it, meaning talked to you, gotten, uh, uh, gotten into the details of what you've accomplished. And then I validated that with people who have worked with you or worked around you through referencing. What I'm actually more interested in is, will you push on an organization and be able to have the harder conversations? Will they be able to push on you and have the harder conversations in ways that are mutually supportive and challenging? I'm not, it's, it's, again, so it's not about you, agreement, but so to, to make that organization for? better. Yeah. So what are you looking for though specifically, right? Like that, that sounds really good at a high level, but let's say you <laughs> are does, talking, you know, um, and, and granted Scott's way more emotionally um, mature than I am. Um, I've always been the, the more immature one of the two of us. Uh, but he also, but Scott does have an amazing EQ. Like he really, really does. I look up to him for that and he has those things, but what are the kinds of things that if, if I were the candidate, if I were wanting to talk to someone like you, what kinds of things would you want me to be able to show you? What kinds of questions might you ask me so that I can go, oh, I got it. So, I mean, one of the things that I would ask, uh, and, and I'll, I'll just run you through. I mean, if we were on an on initial introductory call, and this actually works well because I know you and I are just meeting one another, I would talk about, hey, within any given role, and if you look at somebody's resume in the age of, you know, again, entrepreneurship, I think resumes follow certain themes. So come out of school, there's some kind of normalizing either at a consulting firm or a first career opportunity, or maybe it's a first couple career opportunities where you're trying to figure the whole thing out, you know, figure yourself out. Where do I fit within the organization? And then people, you know, shortly thereafter, call it within the first four to five years of your career, maybe six, you, you land in, hey, I'm a subject matter expert around X, and then you start to you know, climb the hierarchy. Within those three to four year, or maybe it's even 18 to 36 month sprints as you're promoting and taking on new responsibilities, I wanna know what the charter you know, for you individually was in terms of when you stepped into X role, were you clear around what uh, success looked like within that role? Um, do you believe you were successful at it? Why or why not? 
What are the things that you were able to achieve in that? And, and from a sales perspective, it's a little easier to put numbers behind it because it's often about revenue creation. It's about headcount. But even more than that, and, and now I'll you know, pivot back and throw the ball or, or put the spotlight on lease. I mean, what has differentiated lease as long as I've known him is that it's not just been about individual success, but it's about how can I make the people around me better? And, and a very acute focus on, and maybe it is that EQ piece, but how am I connecting with people in positive ways and ensuring that they're supported to go do my job, even if somebody comes along and can do my job better than me. And I think it's that ability or that mindset to say, at any given, uh, at any given moment, you know, the organization is bigger than just me. And I wanna create people that, you know, if, if I have to go do something different in service of the organization, or, you know, maybe it becomes so big that I'm no longer that leader that I've got the people around me who can support me and make me look good as well. So it's almost like inverting the pyramid as you rise the ranks of your career. So it's really about inspecting, I guess, trying to, um, I still feel like I'm, I'm dancing around your question rather than speaking to like one, two, three bullets, but it's really inspecting to say, were you conscious of where the impact was? And, and what can I point to, whether that's people that you hired and then supported to be successful, whether that's customers that you acquired and brought into the organization. Um, because, you know, it's easy or it can be easy. And, and both of you have probably been on a recruiting call once or twice where, you know, you're talking to somebody who's not as thoughtful and it's simply a conversation that goes, hey, that, when you were at Outbound Engine, did you go to, you know, from X to Y and how many heads did you hire? And that might be interesting. And I'm sure it is because, you know, you created a lot of value. But if I'm just taking you on revenue growth and, and how many people you promoted, that says nothing of the quality of people you brought into the organization or how conscious were you that not all dollars are built the same. So are you bringing Let me step in and interrupt you for a second. How common is it for you to have conversations with <clears throat> people who um, have been executives before or are trying to become an executive for the first time and you're like wow this is this person does not have what it takes I, I don't think you're ready um how did this person ever get an executive gig before is that common or or rare i guess does that make sense um i'm super curious about this because i get i get pinged all the time about people who people who want to be you know vps of sales and, and i'm like oh man you're you know you're not ready and it's real obvious. So I'm wondering if, if you, who does this exact thing for a living, placing executives all around the world, do you, is it common for you or, or no? It's probably, you know, if I gave you a percentage, I'd say 20%, you call it 25%, you know, plus or minus 5%. So 30 on the high end, 20 on the lower end of people I qualify in and say, I'm talking to somebody who, clearly gets it, uh, has a track record for success. Um, okay. and it, so, it so 20 to 30, 20 to 30% are for sure locks. What, does that, does that mean like 80 to 70% or, oh man, I don't know if this person has it or is that, is that percentage smaller? What I talk about more and more with my clients is stage appropriate hiring. And so where I, you know, lose a lot of sleep or, or um, feel like as, a, as an industry, so software, technology, um, 
when you've got an organization as an example that has 30 people and five of those people are chief of something um, and the people that they're then going to hire or bring into the organization, you know, declare or say they need to be chief of something, it's a recipe for uh, title inflation. Um, and so too many chiefs. What's that? Too many chiefs. Yeah, too, too many chiefs. But I mean, that gets played out in organizations, big or small. I mean, I, I use that smaller example just to crystallize the concept that I'm talking about. But that same mentality as applied to a mid-stage growth company, you know, series B or C, you know, 200 employees, 100 customers, you know, a recent round of tier one venture investment, you still might argue, you know, does that organization need a chief? And what's a title anyway, if you get the person that has the right skill set? And so back to your question and, and why I brought that up as an example is to say that, you know, and maybe it's my generation or our generation lease who exacerbated this, or maybe it's the crew that's just, you know, one generation earlier, you know, I, I certainly appreciate. So the mentality isn't that you shouldn't desire or want to own more or have a bigger stake in the game. Uh, I get that, you know, as a, as an, a, a, as a, type A or somebody who wants to achieve or have an impact. This is not about squashing people's ambition, but hopefully on a long enough career arc, you know, 25, 30 years, like there's something to be said. And I'd throw the ball to Richard on this one, because as I was doing my due diligence and looking at his own career arc, he's consulting a lot of sales leaders, a lot of organizations. How many people want to go from individual contributor to chief revenue officer all-in-one career move or chief sales officer all-in-one career move and it's like to, to what well, end? A, lot, a lot more a lot more nowadays right yeah Richard? i mean well they all, they, we, all, we all think we can do it we all think we know what we're doing right i mean sure the, the whole concept of entitlement which you know goes to your generational comment it didn't start with the millennials look gen x was very entitled baby boomers were very entitled everybody's been entitled every generation's entitled and every sure. generation that's one above them gets annoyed by their entitlement that nobody worked hard <laughs> enough. Like it's, it's like, it's a whole generational thing and it's a bunch of bullshit that, you know, I think the challenge currently is that, that the current generation of, of millennials and Gen Z actually don't have to put up with it as much as we did. Like when we were told to, you know, STFU get back on the phone, it was like, okay. And now it's kind of like, no, I don't think so. You got to teach me how to get on the phone. So it's a different, so there, that's the part they're busting. That's the part I like about, about the younger generations, but sure. everybody wants to be in charge, right? Everybody thinks they should be in charge. I have this theory. I live in Northern California where, you know, everybody in Southern California, you know, wants to be somebody important and everybody in Northern California thinks they're somebody important, right? It's just the way it is. Like everybody, <laughs> everybody, everybody wants to be famous in LA and everybody thinks they're famous in Cal in San Francisco. So, yeah, I love that quote. That's fantastic. I mean, I do like what you said there, by the way, about teaching. I mean, I, that's, and tying that back in, like tying the two questions are just where we focused on more recent. Um, you know, I think some of the things or the attributes that I look for, you know, we were hiring for a company and it was Richard, you know, versus Scott. One of the things I try to double click on or encourage this leadership team and the board to focus on, you know, who is more tuned in to teaching? And is that something organizationally, Assuming that leadership team values the development piece or values the, hey, I don't want somebody who's just going to do it, but that can show the organization how to think about sales, 
whether that's the reps they're hiring or just shifting the mindset of an engineering and product company to be more sales forward or recognize the importance of a sales culture because revenue and customer acquisition are so critical. Let's just them? say, well, sorry, go ahead. How do you teach that executive group, right? They're looking at someone like me and Scott, which has rarely ever happened. Um, but um, how do you teach them to, I think they commoditize the sales leader, right? They, they, you, you know, your oh, point is, sure. like, who's, they think for we're interchangeable. Sure. They think that you can define it in a book. And granted your point of like, well, let's see if they know how to teach. But even then the CEO doesn't understand what it takes to teach a salesperson. Sure. Right? So how do you, how do you educate? Cause I, for those people who are listening to think about, well, how do I try to evaluate two quality people? Oftentimes they get in their own way through their own biases of sales and salespeople. Right. Um, so I'm curious to hear your thought on that. It's true. I mean, and you know, teach, Maybe in that, con uh, in that context, so like we're teaching your sales organizations, I, I absolutely believe like teach is probably an appropriate word. And then from my side, like as a consultant, you know, influencing is probably a better word. How can I influence this leadership team to be more conscious of different aspects of leadership that, that may manifest in positive ways for their organization or help differentiate person A versus person B? Um, you know, some of it starts with the fund or at the fund level. And so one of my biggest clients and customers, and it's, it's a gift, uh, you know, based on the work my, my business partner cultivated even before I joined the organization, you know, one of our biggest customers on the venture side is Sequoia Capital. And because they have had the legacy of success, and not to say that everything they've invested has turned to gold, but because they've had that legacy of success, they've been able to be more proactive and deploy more dollars and just more mind space to what have been differentiators across their funds that has created so much affluence or success in the companies and then you know, returning that success back to all the shareholders. And the work that we've been able to champion there or the, the um, aha moments have been around organizations who have been more intentional in terms of investing in opportunities to develop individual contributors and executives alike over time have performed better because it hasn't been those situations and not to say they don't occur in these organizations, but they just don't occur at the same frequency. But, you know, a lot of leaders out there in software today and probably in industry today get battlefield promotions, you know? Um, and so for better or worse, they're thrust into these opportunities and, you know, what's that, you know, mentality, fake it till you make it. They're kind of off and on their own and trying to do the best that they can. And to their credit, by the way, if anybody's listening who has been in a battlefield promotion, didn't know what you didn't know, and had to learn trial by fire, uh, you know, you executives who were forged in a crucible uh, uh, based on a specific moment or occurrence, more power to you. And I hope you're out there doing it well, crushing it, and have people like Richard and Lise in your camp who are helping you where you need support. But did you have these kind of people when, when you were growing up? Did you have somebody guiding and, and kind of coaching and mentoring you along the way in your, in your career? Well, it's, it's now popular. And I, I think it's Tim Ferriss who talks about uh, personal board of directors. Um, so don't quote me on that. Somebody out there is now, you know, kind of co-opted this notion of a personal board. I think what I always did well and before it was the popular thing to do 
is my ambition has always been high. Uh, and I just, you know, I've probably been too stupid to not know what conversations I shouldn't have been in. So I just was always pushing to get into the conversation. And then when I realized it was above my pay grade, I just, I, I just tuned my ear in more and just furiously kind of wrote down like, what are the 50 things being discussed right now that I have no idea or that I'm, you know, in the deep end of the pool and then always surrounded myself with people who were kind of the next step in the ladder or a few steps above. And so I've always had kind of five to 10 people I surrounded myself. And, and candidly, I mean, that's one of the ways you and I first connected. When I reached out to Lee for those listening, um, you know, Gosh, feels like a lifetime ago. I was a lot less gray in the beard, definitely. <laughs> Both of us. <laughs> but, you know, when I met you uh, for coffee, you know, I, I immediately was like, here's somebody that regardless of, a, of an opportunity to, you know, work together or, you know, support you into a great organization, here's somebody that the quality of thinking was such that I need to keep this person in my network and I need to bounce ideas off of them. And when things come up around, you know, sales leadership uh, from my constituents, if I need somebody who I can check in with and say, hey, Lise, keep me on track here. I, you know, I just met so-and-so. They're telling me these kind of numbers, this kind of customer growth. They've developed and mentored these type of people. You know, that smells too good to be true. Uh, what's your read on that? He can give me a quick validation. Or it's the same, you know, in terms of navigating boards. So... Uh, you know, longer way to say, I think I've probably been deliberate, uh, back to your question, Lise, around just keeping good people around me. And I think more and more, again, uh, as, as we are in the age of influencers, you do have, you know, uh, professional uh, uh, writers, authors, uh, Tim Ferriss's of the world that are promoting these ideas. So I think the generations that are coming after us are probably more proactive than the average person was when we were coming through the ranks. Uh, you know, the three of us on this conversation. Um, but that is an area going back to, you know, influencing boards or influencing uh, executives. When you have a fund that is proactive on the concepts of development, uh, growth, giving people runway, you uh, disarm uh, or at least have an ability to change the conversation around the commoditization of sales leadership or thinking of it as a as a tool rather than thinking about it as a person. And, you know, we could sit here and compare or, or even just create a, a separate podcast around great sales organizations of the last 20 years of software. And we can all point to them because they created so many different leaders who then went on to go seed other companies. What are, what are, what are a few of your, what are a few of your favorites? Oh, wow. What are, some, what are some of the great sales organizations of, of, uh, let's call it the last 20, 25 years or so. Well, so I get, so I get invited for future surf and sales or, or future podcasts. I'll just go ahead and lead off with the, <laughs> not, yeah. not, count, not counting, not counting, not counting us. Of course. I'll cover, I'll cover my, 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 uh, my backside. Um, no, ser no, seriously though. You've I'm, always I'm, been I'm invited. You've just never accepted. Let's be honest. There we go. That's there right. We go. That's right. Um, I think about, uh, so responses, um, I don't know how many listeners, you know, remember the responses crew, um, you know, what that organization was able to achieve, um, was tremendous. Uh, and it's not just about sales, by the way. So if anybody's listening, who's not a seller, I mean, these organizations are great for a whole host of reasons. Um, but I do think it's special when you can take a good product or even an average product 
bring in a sales leadership team that's working well with marketing or customer success or product um, and can just go on a run four or five years in the making uh, and grow a great company to either acquisition or IPO. Um, I think of, you know, look, LinkedIn has done a tremendous job, you know, and some of that was first mover advantage thinking about, you know, human capital in a different way. Um, but I think they really, you know, saw something uh, consolidated their product uh, and the value that they could create. But is that then, is that a great is that a great sales org or is that just a great product team? Um, I, look, I think you know we could sit here again and not to uh, step around it, but I, I think that a great sales team can take a great or average product and still create greatness. And so I'll give you a flip uh, a flip example. <laughs> Success factors is like selling lipstick on a pig if you can get somebody to buy it. It's heavy. It's uh, uh, way too expensive for what you get. There are many other products, at least now, maybe not you know five or six years ago, that would create more value and be less heartburn. But success factors and SAP's acquisition of that business, I mean, they did a tremendous job getting people excited about what was a heavy you know HR uh, enablement platform. Uh, uh, and so, you know, the, the sales leaders who had championed that inside of enterprises, um, you know, more power to them. But I, if you look at all those individual leaders, you know, whether they were managing teams as AVPs or national vice presidents or even individual contributors, the diaspora of different executives who have left those organizations uh, and gone on to other companies to take that next step up. It's just tremendous, you know, if you look at where all those leaders have landed and what they've ended up doing. And so there's something to be said in there, by the way, it's not just about how fast I can go to the top, but it's about, can I learn under a lease or under a Richard for a season or multiple seasons, take the next step and just go incrementally. And it's not about, you know, an equation of time. It's an equation of at-bats experience. Uh, transfer I, feel, I, I, I feel like that ability to spawn off other leaders to go on and do great things that that's what really to me signals a particular sales organization was great and one of the you know top 20 or top 25 of the last couple decades or whatever that that <clears throat> that to me tells tells a big a big story um i mean there was a really early one like in um uh, ptc so i don't know how many listeners would know ptc i mean i'm sure the three of us could appreciate that organization and that wasn't you know, I actually don't know PTC. I don't either. Neither does Richard. Yeah. You've stumped us. <laughs> well, I mean, so it's, you know, now it's it's since been, you know, all those leaders have gone on to do other things and, and the whole world has gotten consumed by SaaS. So, you know, they were a precursor to SaaS, but uh PTC was was kind of an early uh um uh, an early organization that just you know had tremendous sales professionals. Meraki was another one for a long time. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm curious. Now you got me going. I mean, who do you guys, who do you guys look at as exemplary, you know, companies that created exemplary sales culture? Culturally? Um, well, it's interesting because I was going to turn around and ask Scott this question. Um, I, I do think it has more to do with that leader. Scott, Scott's one of these people, right? Because he didn't go to a sales force and worked there for six or seven years. But Scott has been to several places and I, I am curious, what's the number of people under you, Scott, who started as salespeople who have since taken on a director or a VP role? Oh my God. I, I honestly don't know. <clears throat> I, I would have to sit down. It's a lot. 
I would, I would, I, I think you should, I think it'd be a fun, we should, we should have that as another podcast. Like that would be, because we could talk about how you, but how did you mentor those people? How did you find them? How did you coach them? Right. Like, I think people yeah. like, them. um, because I think that's part of the culture, you know, is that piece. Um, but I think, you know, look, Salesforce is there. I think, um, box is, is kind of at that stage where people are starting to leave, you know, have left box. Um, you know, Doug Landis obviously promoted a lot of people underneath him and worked with, on things um i think uh i think zoom is going to hit that stride now that they've gone public um although i don't think anybody wants to leave right now um for lots of reasons uh financial probably more than anything <laughs> um but i think those 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 high growths have been there i also think that I, and i would turn this back around to you because this is another piece of this is those successful organizations seem to manage turnover better than others right and we know the stats around the, the VP of sales lasting 18 months, but the stat around the marketing leaders around 25 or 26 months. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm curious as to know, like, and I've seen people leave successful organizations. Like, you know, my, my belief is that some people will leave, you know, a place like Salesforce with a tremendous career behind them, but they never actually built anything. So then they go to some startup and they don't yeah. realize how you actually have to build something. Like, no, you get to write the job you know, requisition. No, you get to write the job description. No, you have to do all these this is things. A super common, super common mistake that I yeah. find in, in early, early stage startup orgs in particular is like so, that they hire uh, somebody who came from a company with a good name, but who never built anything before. Those are the companies I'm looking at. But again, I'm also in a SaaS world, right? Like I'm a little bit like you, I'm <clears> in that tech side. I'm sure there are plenty of great organizations in the middle of America that are not tech organ organizations, right? Um, you know, company, traditional companies like GM and HP and uh, GE and all those places, they had to have done something culturally. You know, these companies used to have management training programs. You know, that shit didn't exist for us. Um, so they, they, it's out there. I think yeah. there's a lot of them. Um, but I, but I want to, I actually want to shift this now is why is the tenure 18 months for a sales leader? This goes back to that question of you teaching in your role teaching the board how to hire the right person. What, what's wrong with this 18 month situation? I, I, I wanna hear from someone who sees it from a different angle than Scott and I do. Oh, well, look, I don't think there's a silver bullet there, um, but I'll, I'll try to generalize or pick out some bigger themes. Um, I think that the design or the setup uh, is misguided. Um, so, you know, you have an organization, for example, that, you know, has a mid-market product um, or a, you know, a corporate, you know, focus, uh, focused product. And, you know, because margins uh, and opportunity, you know, on TAM uh, is perceived to be significantly larger with an enterprise customer base, uh, you know, you go cultivate or, or try to uh, attract a enterprise seller into your business. And so, you know, you could be successful at that. Um, you know, you can probably do a, enough right there, you know, in terms of marketing and presentation of the story. Also, you know, just by nature, I think sellers, um, there's, there's some amount of, uh, ego when you say, Hey, look, an organization wants to go try a new segment or, or take their product to a new, a new segment. You just, you know, you assume, Oh yeah, like I want to go do that. That sounds awesome. I want to be the first one to take on that challenge. And so to no fault of that sellers, like that's the right ambition and mindset you need. But then you get into the organization and you realize, okay, well, it's one thing that the board or, or, you know, an individual executive, you know, CEO and, you know, co-founders wanted to take on the enterprise, 
but if we haven't really begun to understand at every level of the organization what supporting an enterprise customer actually looks like, and we're ready to have that discipline that we can't support an enterprise customer the same way as supporting a mid-market customer, and the second that you then are the tip of that spear, you sell that first enterprise deal, but then recognize that everything that happens afterward isn't enterprise-based, the customer's frustrated, customer churns out, and then you're less inclined or less as excited to go attract the next enterprise customer. Or maybe you're successful at attracting the, the first 10 enterprise customers, but again, not enough has been vetted or set up or designed as far as what does this mean for the rest of the organization. And so you might have been successful at, hey, I got us our first looks at you know, the first 10 enterprise customers, but now I'm looking to the organization like, I need help, I can't do this alone. Like, I've sold it, you now need to deliver on it. And then you'll be the first person that you take notes. I, I want to come back to this notion that, look, someone comes in and you, you hire someone like me, like, and, and I know my, like, I know me, I, I'm definitely like your zero to 10 or 12 million guy, right? Like I probably get you there. Um, and so it wouldn't offend me if someone came along and said, look, Richard, you know, you're not going to take us to enterprise, but I've seen people go from zero to 10, 10 to 20, 20 to 30. And then all of a sudden they're like, Oh, we're going to go after the enterprise. And that person, in my opinion, deserves to be able to go to that get that shot but somewhere some board member some ceo starts to think they're smarter than the sales leader at sales which is okay but then they go and they bring in someone else and it just goes to hell like why do you think that mistake happens for people what where is it on the ceo ego side that that they think they need something different than what they have and are unwilling to let the person who got them there take them where they need to be? Uh, well, look, I can only draw from experience. And so it might not be the question that, or the response that, that you want to hear, because I, you know, there are probably numerous instances where it's, it's, it's more a symptom of like, well, what does a board member now feel like we need to do? Or, or what is a, you know, a, a, uh, founder CEO's impulse reaction uh, to a certain situation when we're now a $50 million company. Uh, and so we need to up level this leader. Like Mateo, that's, that's, just that's, answer the question. You can't. Dude, you got the you longest wind up sort of Rachel Maddow. Answer the question. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it goes back to the design. Uh, the design is, uh, and what I often tell my customers is, you know, when I hire lease into an organization or work with a team to hire lease into an organization, I make sure that that CEO has a conversation with lease that says, hey, look, you might come in and be so good at what you're going to do that we're going to end up needing to up level at some point because we're going to have more customers than you might have seen. We're going to have more revenue than you might have seen. So nobody on this, you know, uh, journey uh, is safe in that regard. But I will give you the opportunity when that comes up to, to talk to you about it, to let you know when I believe that ceiling is approaching, and then we're going to work through it. And so then I'm a part of a lot of conversations that are around, hey, we need to give lease this runway because we're coming up on that threshold. But at the same time, we also need to be looking out into the market to see what's available. And so, you know, there could be a solution that says, hey, we're going to up level and Scott's been so instrumental at helping us get here that if he wants to continue to be on the journey, great. Uh, or you haven't if, given me a specific, you haven't said one thing about a skill set that says that person will use Scott as this example. He's my favorite example in this, but there's no, because there is no, there is no, is. there is no, there is no specific thing other than has done it already before. It's the difference. Exactly. That's my point. I'm trying to figure it's out the difference that between can, can do and has done. 
it's the difference between somebody <clears throat> at some point was given the opportunity to go from 30 million ARR to 50 million ARR and from 50 to 100. And they had that trust from uh, the CEO or that strong of a relationship and other people haven't, you know, and some of that might be the sales leaders fault. Some of it might be the CEO's fault. Some of it might be the board's fault. You know, it takes a pretty strong CEO with who's remained, who's remained in power and in a position of strength with the board to be like, nah, I don't need to, I don't need to top off my executive in this one department. Richard's got this. We're going to be fine. You know, we've done, we've done well so far. Um, I've never been a hundred million dollar CEO before and you haven't fired me yet. So we don't need to fire the executive. It just, it just doesn't exist all that much. But to me, it, it's just somebody, somebody gave some, somebody else a shot. And if you don't get that shot, you're going to get, you get stuck. But I, I find it terribly ironic that the CEO's never done it before either. Oh, hundred percent. CEO's not getting replaced. Hundred percent. Right? That's what I'm saying. It's so it's it's extremely rare, right? That's why you don't find a a, a lot of people who've gone zero to a hundred in a in a head of sales role, right? Not that many people get the get the opportunity. Yeah, but I don't think enough people, you know, uh, are pressing hard enough to say. I mean, bringing up the the points that you guys are raising, and so. I mean, maybe what I'd say, you know, from my side and, and where I'm trying to be, um, and it's not differentiated for the sake of driving more business. I mean, hopefully there are other practitioners out there that see the value in this, but it's, it's holding up a mirror to that CEO founder saying the question that you just pointed out, Richard, which is, you know, you never were the CEO of a $50 million business until, you know, you founded this organization as an example. So, you know, what are you doing developmentally to ensure that you're fit to get to a hundred million? And can we provide the same resources to Scott uh, so that the runway can be extended? Yeah. And so, more companies I'm experiencing are taking that mindset and mentality um, and asking that question. But well, that would also, be great. Every 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 head of sales who's listening to this podcast right now is speed dialing Mateo because they're all like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> Somebody, somebody's thinking about this in a way that's going to protect us. <laughs> I can think of three VPs of sales right now that I know who in the last week reached out to me frustrated and worried and confused about how they're being treated. And um, yeah, so you, you might have a lot of people coming your way now. <laughs> You're going to save us Please, all. Yeah, I'm here for sure. Um, but look, what I'd say though is <laughs> Zero to 50 million or, or zero to 20, you know, is, is such a tough build. It's arguably the, the, the artist push because you're laying down so much, you know, initial infrastructure in addition yeah. to having to go sell. So you're creating everything as you're selling it, yeah. all the collateral, all the material. And so what happens here, and so that it's not, hey, we're just being dismissed without, you know, a second thought. And if that is happening, then... It's unfortunate that some individuals are in companies with boards who are as thoughtless or founders who are as uh, uh, unaware of, of what's happening in their organization or who they have. But if you've got a team of people that are putting in the right amount of time, even if this is still a new concept around giving people runway, what I would encourage your listener you know, group or listener base to, to be proactive in 
is you need to be visible with your board. Even if you're not in a board meeting, depending on what level you are in the organization, yeah. you need to have relationships that are not just myopic within sales. Because if you are connecting with your founder or your executive team in ways that are additive and that are both about promoting the things you do well, but also the things that are keeping you up at night in terms of your own limitations or your own succession planning or you know, where you feel you're at in terms of your peak, if you're declarative around those things, I find people aren't gonna use them to throw you under the bus. People are gonna use it yeah, as a way really, to action. It's, really, it's really good advice for everybody who's listening. It, the more you can develop relationships with the board and get into the, the room, whether it's in fundraising or um, you know, quarterly board meetings or whatever, I, I wholeheartedly agree with what Mateo just said. If, if you're not in the room, you don't control any of that dialogue whatsoever. They can't get a grip on, on who you are. All they're looking at is your numbers or your report that you submit on behalf of the, the CEO. Um, and it's not easy necessarily, it's not that easy to get into those meetings. There are, there are a lot of founders still who close door those things and, and try to prevent uh, access. But I absolutely agree that you should be pushing and that's something that you can try to do to uh, increase your stability and your tenure and strengthen the relationships there. Um, now that we're <clears throat> almost out of time here, um, <laughs> tell, tell us something that we can do um, you know, for you other than directing every distraught head of sales your, your way who's listening uh, to this. Is there anything beyond that that we're able to do to amplify your message or um, just help you out in your journey? Um, now, look, I, this is probably more applicable to your listener uh, base than it is just directly to me. And, and by the way, if anybody is listening and found any value in what I'm sharing, I love what I do. I feel incredibly passionate or, or grateful uh, to be in the profession that I am in. And so I love talking for a living. Um, as Richard rightly characterized, you might have to deal with a lot of preface at times, but if you can get through that, I think the substance of the message is still there. So please reach out, Pink Scott. Hey, uh, just tell you, us what you, just tell us how we can help you. Come on. <laughs> uh, but what you guys could do is actually continue to be more proactive. Continue to reach out to marketing, customer success, reach out to board members, reach out to executive teams teach people about the importance of sales and not just in the sense of revenue creation or customer uh, acquisition, but in about the craft or the, the amount of knowledge that you have to take to your customers uh, to be knowledgeable, to be credible and to build those relationships. Because at the end of the day, selling is about relationships and most of the organization outside of sales takes that for granted. So it's self-serving because it's only gonna help me get better. So how you could help me in doing that is that I will have more sales leaders who are promoting that and thereby making my ability to influence boards and leadership teams that much easier. But go yeah. be that for your organizations and watch how people find it harder to dismiss you because you can't dismiss somebody that you're connected with, that you know about, that is taking time to help you get better while making themselves better as well. And I know that yeah. seems, again, more um, altruistic, but it's, it's true, it's no, the reality. Good. People just don't walk a mile in your shoes. So they yep. can't possibly think that there's method to the madness. Yeah, that's good. Good, good advice. I appreciate you spending some, uh, some time with us today. Mateo, always good to, uh, to catch up with you, man. And uh, I expect 
expect some people to go check you out on uh on linkedin and shoot you some messages and see if you can't be a guiding light for them in their career right now and and, and save save people who are sales leaders who are in trouble protect us protect us all man Maybe closing statement, I just say, look, guys, uh, I hope everybody who's listening is healthy, uh, navigating the situation uh, to the best of their ability. Um, look, there are going to be some industries that are more exposed than others. Uh, so I'm not telling anybody listening that something they don't already know. What I would tell you, I think there's a huge opportunity right now where we're spending a little more time with loved ones and where we're just you know, around the house. Lock yourself in. Uh, I, I'm doing this session from my daughter's room right now. Uh, so it's an opportunity to check out her space in a whole new way. But uh, sequester yourself in you know, sons, daughters' rooms, home offices. Now's an, an amazing opportunity for reinvention, uh, to be a, 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 an example of optimism, uh, to be a resource, to reach out. You know, I was talking about relationships. Everybody's got 5, 10, 15, 20 people that they could go connect with today and just get in their head and say, hey, how are you thinking about this? How could I listen? How could I be a support? Um, and so it's a huge opportunity to come out this, you know, come through it, uh, patiently, but come out of it stronger. So everybody out there, keep pushing, uh, stay confident. I think we're going to be a better, you know, better sales community, uh, hopefully just a better community at large on the other side of this. So thank you guys. It's a pleasure to work with, uh, or to be, uh, invited to participate with you. All right, buddy. Talk to you soon, man. Thanks guys. Bye, Mateo. Oh, he jumped already.